So sieht es auch der Reklamebach. This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash, and with me, as always, is my co-host and the fruit of my loins. It's Hank. That's a weird reference. I'm your son. Can I call you daddy or papa? No, someone else calls me daddy now. That sounds so insidious. That sounds fucking horrible. I don't like this intro at all. I feel a little uncomfortable. Because it's true. Uh, You must have noticed that the show got a little sporadic there, and Hank was flying a little bit solo. We had some classics come up. Because for uh, the last month, I've been dealing with the birth of a baby. My baby. She was born. Yes, I had a baby with my old lady, and she was born a little premature, but she's out of the hospital now. She's out of the NICU. She's home, and she's being a sweet little annoying shit. So... Congratulations to me. Thumbs up. So we thought we would take the show in a very patriotic route and talk about uh, the murder of children, kidnapping of children, and deportation of children. Because what better way to celebrate, <laughs> you know? Uh, I, never, I haven't even thought about uh, this series of movies in that mindset. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, there's some some brutal aspects of this that aren't maybe picked up upon, but... um. Yeah, so Buford I. Alexander Nash was born a little bit early, and we're all pretty happy. We're all pretty excited. New Fucking co-host. Buford? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that's the name he settled on, Buford. Bubba? No, uh, there is a family name, though. My uh, grandfather's real first name was Bluford, and I shit you not. That was the big friendly dog, right? I, I That's Clifford. No, Did, Bluford. Wasn't there, wasn't there a, like a mystery dog that solved clues uh, that wasn't Scooby? McGruff the crime dog? No. Well, he did, yeah, and he saved a lot of people from uh, from drug addiction. I'm thinking of Blue's Clues. Never mind. I'm sorry. Blue's Clues, Bluford. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's hard because we wanted to do something really appropriate uh, for childbirth, so I think it came down to this and Eraserhead. And I don't know. I don't. I don't well, know. we'll get into a racer, I'm sure, at some point here soon. Yeah, I don't know how that, uh, how well that would have gone over at this point in time. We'll give it a couple more months and jump into that. I but... will just say this about a racer head and becoming a new parent. Accurate. That film is fucking accurate as shit. We settled on though. Larry Cohen, the wonderful Larry Cohen, the great Larry Cohen, one of uh, the greatest people to ever exist, in in my humble opinion, Larry fucking Cohen. It's Alive, the trilogy, all of them, all three movies. It's just going to be a, an Irish night. Lots of dead kids that didn't starve to death, but weird Irish joke. Ooh, God damn it. Uh, Irish famine <laughs> joke, like fucking just a um, few minutes and in. And there is a Scream Factory box set out that I got for a really good price a few years ago. I think I only paid 20 bucks for it in a store. 
not even like ordering off of Amazon or anything. In the store, it was like 20 bucks on uh, on special. And um, I'm pretty sure a good portion of the special features on that Screen Factory Blu-ray set are ported over from uh, older DVD releases of the uh, Larry Cohen films, which is, I mean, it's fine. If you've never seen any of these films before, then you listen to the commentary. Larry Cohen said they're talking to himself about his, his, his best friend, James Dixon, who he was in the military with. He's been in all of my films. He's one of the Irish players. Uh, I will say that Larry is prone to telling the same stories over and over again in the same fashion of Tom Savini with his Vietnam War stories and where he learned true special effects. But there is always something really pleasurable, uh, especially now that he's gone, just hearing him talk and and some of the detail he goes in. All three of these films have a commentary on the uh, Scream Factory, Shout Factory edition. And although he repeats himself, it's really fun just hearing him and some of the excitement he has and retelling how the you know all the intro scenes and how everything was done he's somebody i appreciate truly when it comes to an audio commentary which uh you know joe bob briggs recently joked about with what was it which which film did he it's a q he showed q on uh, the last drive in the first season well no that was the the larry cohen but recently he did a film where he was busting the director's balls for uh their horrible commentary tracks you're you're, you're oh it's uh joe lynch yeah you're joe lynch you're you're crushed joe lynch um you're crushed joe lynch <laughs> i'm sorry i'm in the 12th okay. grade insulting i don't you. think i have a crush on joe lynch but i respect him as a director he's a he makes really decent films and that's the most I will say about Joe Lynch. He's a pretty goddamn adequate director. I was just being the bully from The Burning for some reason. You crushed Joe Lynch, you know, because you're queer. I don't know why that was funny to me, but <laughs> it still is. I'm going to laugh. Yeah, he was insulting Joe Lynch on his poor commentary skills, and Larry is one of the dudes that I really go for. Like, Larry and uh, David Cronenberg, he does one hell of a fine commentary track. But Larry Cohen, although uh, he repeats himself as I have three times at this point, he gets so deep and emotional into things. I really like the commentary track for It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, just because he tells so many fucking stories about Moriarty, and, and it just goes back to weird stuff and his early career. He's a fun guy to listen to, unlike me. Well, like what I find interesting about Larry Cohen, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way by any means, but he seems like the last of the old school hucksters. Um, he kind of reminds me of the Herschel Gordon Lewis, David Friedman, uh, even Lloyd Kaufman. Okay, here's Charles something Band. that will be even I guess more controversial and insulting. I think guys like H.G. Lewis compared to Larry Cohen are used car salesmen and Larry Cohen was more of a, a like fine diamond dealer. I I really put him on a higher tier than some of the guys that just mass produce stuff and like Charles Band who he's put out a lot and some of it's stuff that we absolutely love like Tourist Trap, but a lot of it is Puppet master, whatever. One of the, you know, it doesn't fucking matter. But I, I, I think Larry has a bit more integrity. I don't think he's like Larry Cohen was all about business. But I think while he was writing, he also had a business sort of mind. He, it wasn't strictly about the most artistic thing he could do. It was also what was very, um, very producible, and he could make money off of. Which is, I mean, there's no shame in that whatsoever. Um, it's just he knew how to gear his his scripts around something that he could actually sell which uh, is fairly admirable to a certain extent of actually like making a movie because a lot of people will tell you if you're writing a movie and you have no money well you need to uh you know just just write whatever you want to and then worry about the money later nah fuck that you kind of really need to worry about the money to begin with if you want to write some big epic script that's fine but if you actually want to get something produced 
and something that you want to, if you're trying to get it self-financed, don't write something with a thousand locations. Don't write something. I mean, like literally Larry Cohen used his house in like what? 60 to 70% of his movies take place in his house at some point. I would say almost half or more than half of It's Alive and It's Alive 2 alone are filmed at Larry Cohen's house in his backyard it's, or across the street. Was it Black street. Caesar's house, I believe, at some point? Maybe but maybe not Black Caesar's. Um, it was one of the uh, his exploitation films. I'm like... sure from the second he moved to California and he bought that house that everything was filmed there. And then because of the investment that he got three years later, which we'll talk about with It's Alive when we get into the meat of this show, uh, he bought an investment property in New York City, which he it was a brownstone he ended up selling, which made him more money probably than a lot of his movies did. And all of that comes down to him shooting it in his fucking house. Like, I mean, there's a scene even in It's Alive 3 where they're at this like hu- huge, flouty touty cocktail party. It's Larry's house. It's just that's what he did. <laughs> if he wasn't shooting at his house, he was shooting like without permission. Like in Black Caesar, one of my favorite scenes is the very end where he's wounded walking down the street. They didn't have any permission to film that. They didn't call anybody. They just wounded him, covered him in blood. And the remarkable thing is nobody actually stops to see if he's okay. And Larry's filming it from a rooftop while, you know, this African-American guy's bleeding to death. Uh, nobody fucking gives a shit. It's kind of cool. And that kind of gets into... One of uh, one of my passions with Larry Cohen is some people say that he never made a horror movie. I, I disagree with that. But I think almost the entirety of his work was very politically motivated and and definitely had a stance behind it. Uh, and sometimes it's masked ridiculously like cue the winged serpent and the stuff, uh, the stuff especially. I mean, that's a very, very politically charged movie that otherwise you would think is about some sort of killer whipped cream, something like that killer tire movie. You you don't put a lot of thought into it because of the ridiculous nature of it, but at the end of the day, Larry Cohen had a lot of substance. I like to say he directed with his balls and his heart because he really went out there and he broke some boundaries. And, you know, again, he's one of those white Jewish guys that, pushed the black exploitation movement um, and and really changed the face of cinema, I think, with just his direction and where he came up with his ideas and what came from his heart and his balls. He really, like, he pushed some boundaries. I love Larry. I love Larry Cohen. I'm so sad he's dead. And we have said this a lot before when it comes to George Romero. We lived in an era that any Romero movie was a gift. I consider that with, with Larry Cohen. I mean, just... God, we we got that cell phone movie. I'm sorry, it's not a cell phone movie. We got the Colin Farrell movie and the phone. No, movies. he made a movie called uh, was it Cellular? Cell? Yeah, Cellular. 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 Yeah, yeah, he did the cell phone movie, and then he did the uh, the Colin Farrell phone booth movie with Kiefer Sutherland, the voice of Kiefer Sutherland, and a Masters of Horror episode in the last you know twenty odd years before his death. And those were great just to have. I mean, they they weren't what you they would were want. like. I th- I saw phone booth in the theater. And I was like, because I pretty fucking cool movie. Well, I saw the trailer, and I'm like, okay, whatever on that. That just looks like another Colin Farrell thing. Okay, fine. And then I saw Written by Larry Cohen. I was like, well, fuck, I got to go see that. And I saw it. I was like, that is an actually really well-put-together script. I mean, the the film itself, Joel Schumacher shot, and it's okay. I mean, it's not like it's directed within an inch of its life or anything, but the script is a, like it's really tight. And the same thing with Cellular. I think Cellular is a lot less effective. But I think the script in itself was very, very tight. Now, I might be thinking of the wrong movie, but was Cellier like Kim Basinger and uh, yes. Jason Statham? And uh, Chris Evans. Ugh. He's running around with a cell phone trying to – she's like locked in an attic or what something. a rough cast. With kidnappers. 
Unless and it was it, like 1989. I don't want to see a fucking thing with Kim Basinger in it. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> but um, but like the, the concept in itself was like incredibly well realized. I mean, overall, it's kind of a eh, somewhat bland kind of action thing. But the idea that Larry came up with was uh, it was amazingly well done. I think that might be kind of a trademark and staple of Larry in general is just something very well done, where very well thought out. And transitioning, you know, into It's Alive, that's, I think... I don't think Larry Cohen ever lost money on a movie. I don't think he ever had a bomb. I I think the only time he lost money was the initial release of It's Alive, which three years later he ended up doubling his money as it got re-released, which this is unheard of. This movie was out on drive-in circuits. It was showing as a, a triple feature, the end of triple features. It had been released all over. Larry had gone, and it was uh, popular in the overseas market. I can't recall which country it was, but it was like the second movie in uh, like Portugal, somewhere like that. Uh, the four Warner Brothers, the, the second highest grossing movie for Warner Brothers in general in this country. It showed on a double bill with Citizen Kane in France. It was great in the European market. It flopped. It just wasn't handled successfully over here at all. Three years later, Warner Brothers changes hands, and the movie gets an entirely new release. It gets released like it never existed before, even though it's showing on Hollywood Boulevard. It, it totally got recut, re-put out, and given a, a great ad campaign for it, which really... Oh, I love that trailer. The trailer's yeah. amazing. The Davises have had a baby, but they're not sending out any announcements. Most new parents are a little scared when they have a baby. The Davises are terrified. You see... There's only one thing wrong with the Davis baby. It's alive. It's alive. Don't see it alone. Please. Rated PG. I mean, uh, not just how uh, horrifying it is when the, the clawed hand comes out of the baby crib, but just the wording. The worst thing about the baby is it's alive. That's what catches you, and you, you really get a twist there of, like, what? I mean, because just the concept of harm to children, of something bad happening to your new baby, for a parent, that's got to be, like, the, I mean, what, what is fear outside of that? What, what else would be the most uh, pure essence of fear? Well, okay, and we'll get into the original It's Alive right now because I have I have a story. Um, at the beginning of It's Alive, you have the birth of the child, and it's this amazingly like kind of tense surgical scene of trying to you know get the birth of this baby that we don't know is particularly affected at this point, and the baby ends up killing everyone in the operating room basically. Well, you get that really nice family dynamic scene before that of the relationship with the father and the son, and you you get something that I think is really, really important to the entirety of this movie right before the labor scene is the discussion with the the husband and wife about how they're happy they decided to to keep it and you know are you sure this isn't going to uh, block you in and ruin your life like you know last time and it's obvious that they have worked through a lot of issues with their previous child and that they've gotten to a point that they considered abortion and not carrying through with this pregnancy. And I, I, I think it's overlooked a lot when it comes to uh, It's Alive, just the, the point and um, some of the poignancy of the movie is that, that opening statement between um, I got, uh, John Ryan and is it Sharon Farrell? Sh- yeah, Sharon Farrell. Um, and yes, that, that is, um, it does add to the overall complex idea that we're working with. But when we do get to the, the scene of the birth of the baby, 
that is not far from the fucking truth because when you do go into that operating theater because we went through a whole C-section thing and all this and it was kind of an emergency situation and you see your your uh, your wife laying there and she like the anesthesia is affecting her and she's like going through some shit and they tell you they've ripped this baby out of her and all this craziness that you don't know what the fuck is going on and just it's all happening so fast and you happen to just turn your head for about half a second and see a giant hole and some guy fucking reaching into your woman's guts and playing with them and just kind of go, okay, I'm going to turn my head and look at my new baby now. It's like that scene is amazingly like well-realized because of the, the shock that's going on just with a regular birth, not, not so much a birth of a, like a mutant fucking crazy demon fetus, but just like in any situation that is, a bizarre thing to get yourself involved in, especially when it's like so quick and out of nowhere. It's just like, oh my god, I wasn't prepared for any of this shit. Do you relate to Tom Savini's Vietnam War story now more that you've seen? I do. <laughs> what I was thinking about is um, anatomically correct gore, and I saw it in front yeah. of my eyes for the first time. No, it's 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 sort of remarkable when you have a concept of, of certain things. And some previous jobs I've worked at, um, you know, when we're not doing Death by DVD, I've been exposed to a lot of weird, just awful uh, visages. I saw somebody <clears throat> that had driven into a power transformer and was just, you know, burned to death, just completely and utterly devastatingly burned to death. And every time I go to make fun of Tom Savini, I think of that story now. And I imagine there's something uh, even more... My words will be weird here, but horrific about childbirth because, especially in your essence, you're watching your wife, somebody you absolutely treasure and love, being, uh, you know, bisected and something ripped from her, and it's, you know, you have a concern for the well-being of the child, and you have a concern for the well-being of the wife, and, uh, you know, the translating this and moving into, it's alive. You know, they don't have a, a concept. Something's wrong here until. You know, because the doctor keeps making remarks of like it's it's a big baby, it's a, it's a large one, it's a chonker, and then finally the baby's born, and it just he didn't say it's a chonker. <laughs> yeah. That's not from the movie. What are you talking about? I was paraphrasing. Uh, <laughs> that was a chonker, man. <laughs> um, but I can tell you this: that chaos is in like it's amazingly real, and in in the film it's that way too, where like no one's really telling you anything. Because everybody's just doing their job like they're supposed to be doing because it's, you know, it's a situation everybody's involved in. But no one's like walking your dumb ass through it. So it's just like it's all crazy and it's all happening at once. And I don't know what the fuck is going on. And I'm just following what people tell me to do. Well, imagine at that aspect that you're following through with the protocol. But the baby has mutilated like four people and the doctor yes. comes out of the emergency room covered in blood and you come in and they're trying to smother it. So, I mean, I feel in this situation, we've got a lot of, uh, like, true fucking performance from John Ryan. Like, his emotion, his over-the-top behavior is just, you know, and he's confused. He wants to follow protocol at one extent, but he's concerned about his wife. He wants to know what's happening with the baby. She's screaming in the other room, Sharon Farrell. It's just absolutely chaotic, and... What's really neat about this is when they went to fucking shoot the scene, they had everything set up. They they shot at a hospital, I think in Malibu, that no longer exists. Uh, you know, it's it's been torn down, and they had everything set up. They had the lights ready to go, and a woman runs in and is you know halfway through crowning. She's about to give birth, so they have to pull everything out, clean the entire room. This woman gives birth. Everybody hangs out, waits, 
and then they end up shooting the scene. So Sharon Farrell and John Ryan had a lot of help uh, with emotion with this scene, I think, with all of that happening. And, you know, you get ready to shoot, everything's going on. And uh, like four or five hours later after this birth, they cleaned up the scene uh, of the crime and let them shoot it and get it done with. So the whole performance, everything is just really, really. And coming into this movie that you know is about a killer baby having something this emotional to kick the ride off with is just, it's a perfect roller coaster because you go, you, you get a good ride right off the bat. Well, like one of the interesting things about John Ryan's performance is after the like the whole the whole incident, the baby's born, his wife is dead, and then he basically wants vengeance upon this baby that killed his wife. From him going from she the doesn't die. absolute concern that he has in the situation till afterwards, where he just runs cold, like he just he has this very cold nature about him throughout the rest of the film, where he's very cold and calculating, and I. I can somewhat relate to that because you just kind of get into this like mental haze after it's all said and done. It's just like, you don't know what the fuck you just went through. And it's not like you're over, at least I wasn't personally, it wasn't overly emotional. It was just like, yeah, that thing just happened. And now I've got to go over here. Cause afterwards it's like, now follow me. Okay. I'm following you. Okay. We're going to do this to your baby. Okay. You're doing that to my baby now. Okay. I get it. It's just, it's, it's kind. I guess you could see even say it's some of a form of shock, or whatever. It's just, but it, it's not like this overly like dramatic fucking thing where it's just like, oh my god, I just knew that I I would never love anything quite like this ever in my life. And it's just like, no, it's more like, yeah, a bunch of shit just happened. Crazy. Yeah, she doesn't die though. Is that the no? She dies, doesn't? No, she no, kills herself, yeah. doesn't she? she? She doesn't die. She, uh, I guess, we'll give some some heavy spoiler alerts toward the end of the movie. the The baby has the strange inherent nature of coming back to its family. So it goes to the school, then it goes home, where she's hiding it in the basement. And then the friend Charlie that was watching their son gets killed by the baby, and that's where John Ryan shoots it. And then it goes into the sewer scene. So she lives. She's all right. Does she live? I, it's yeah. been a while since what she was alive. You can't tell. Yeah, she she survives the first one. Um, usually it's me that misspeaks. Last last week I think I said something oh. to the effect of um, it was Vincent Price that becomes the the fly at the end of the fly. We all become Hank. We all fuck up. It's called pulling a Hank. It happens. <laughs> uh, but like, see, I I remember the movie differently. That's weird because I distinctly remember that was the whole point of his vengeance. I guess it was just because he had a monster baby then. I uh, I think a lot of the point is the transition um, because for, for most of the movie John Ryan is uh, trying to prove with the police and with the public that it's it's not his child. It's It's not human. It's not part of him and he joins in with the hunt and he starts helping everyone you know look for this this kid i mean because it's leaving a, a, a trail of brutality everywhere it goes one of the most unique scenes i think probably the the most iconic scene from it's alive is the milkman scene where the baby oh yeah slaughters the milkman and it transitions from uh, the pure white the pure white snow driven milk that drives down and then it moves into this kind of Tom Savini looking blood. And it's just a really unique. And that's something that Larry Cohen, uh, I mean, the, the man was competent with absolutely everything that he did. It wouldn't matter what he did, but he really knew how to do a pickup shot. He really knew how to fill and uh, give you just dread. Like he really knew how to channel and, and bring in something that was a nightmarish image. That was something that worked, I think, significantly with with this in general. Like it almost runs kind of like the movie Alien, 
you don't see the alien. You get to see bits and pieces of it, and with It's Alive, you really don't get to see much of the baby. But he he is attempting, um, John Ryan's character is attempting to uh, destroy it. You know, it's almost like a, like a Greek kind of story, like a Greek tragedy that he has to destroy and kill his son, and it, he has to prove to everyone else that he's not a monster, and you know his wife obviously doesn't feel the same way. At one point, she's trying to protect the baby and keep it hidden, and that's where things... Uh, you get to the sequence toward the end of the movie where he fires upon the baby, and they go into this really great uh, underground sequence, and he, he realizes when he finds his child, his monster child, completely and utterly afraid, that it's it's his. And, I mean, there's a lot of different mixed messages that you can take from this. It's, uh, I don't know, almost a, a pro-life thing, but at the same time, it dances around a completely different angle at the beginning of the movie with the abortion aspect. But the end of the movie is, I guess, one of the more confusing aspects because he suddenly realizes that I guess it's his child, that it's a part of him no matter what, even if it is a monster, as they've been calling it, which it is. It's, it's killed, like, 14 people. The body count's kind of high in this movie. So he nestles it in his jacket, and he takes it through the entire sewer system, running from the rest of the police officers, and then that's where the sequence, uh, something that we've omitted, or not omitted, rather, but not brought up, is it's suggested throughout this movie that the pregnancy became a monster and uh, gestated as a monster because the the wife was on a uh, anti-pregnancy pill. That's not what it's called. Jesus, you can tell I've not gotten laid Birth in a control? while. Birth control? Birth control, yeah. Anti-pregnancy pill. I sound like fucking Richard Nixon. They have this suggestion that uh, the pharmaceutical company recognizes that their drug may have been responsible for the pregnancy. So again, you're toying with this kind of pro-life topic and it, it, I really don't think Larry specifically was trying to attack it that way. I don't think that was the, the, the fully driven idea here. I think it's supposed to ask a lot of questions, and a lot of them delve into not just, um, you know, uh, pregnancy-related things, but drugs in general, uh, just the, uh, the food market, things like Monsanto, genetically engineered food, sugar, the use of refined sugar, alcohol smoking, all sorts of things that can have effect on the human body and, and shit like that. And there's a pharmaceutical rep that's running with them the entire time, and that's where you get to your final sequence of the baby literally jumps and kills the pharmaceutical rep as they open fire, and that's, that's the end of the movie. It's, it's a very nihilistic ending, I'd guess. Like I kind of view what it's about slightly differently because I don't see it as so much of a pro-life message as it seems more like a story about the nature of being a father and kind of how alienating that process can be because as the father, it, that baby didn't grow inside of you. It didn't, um, you're not as connected to the, the baby. I mean, as, is throughout the film with his wife is obviously wanting this baby and she's wanting to keep the baby and wanting to protect it because it's her baby. And he just doesn't feel that same way. And I can somewhat relate to it. It's not like this overwhelming feeling, but you don't have that same sort of connection, especially at first. It's more of a thing that's irrevocably changed your life in some ways, sometimes for the best and sometimes for the worst. And it's coming to grips with that, with the nature of what fatherhood is. And eventually John Ryan does come to grips with it and fully accepts the, the baby and just like, okay, no matter what this thing is, it's still my child. 
and I still have to protect it. So, I, like, yeah, the sewer I sequence. Kinda... I mean, that's where he he realizes and he sees in its its fear, its vulnerability that it it is just yeah, as it's, human it's as his he nature is. to to want to protect it at this point. Because... Well, like, an interesting concept too that you have to realize is something that um, Larry Cohen says is one of the reasons he he came up with the concept and wrote this movie is he saw a, a baby, a, an infant, a newborn throwing a temper tantrum. And his his thought was, if they had strength, how how much havoc they could wreak and how devastating it would be, and that the human being is the only uh, child that's born weak. You know, in the animal kingdom, everything is born, and within a few minutes, it's it's ready to rip and tear and, and go at it and attack and live its life. But the infant child of a human has to be protected. But in this ens- essence, with uh, it's alive. For some reason or another, whether pharmaceutical or an evolution in humankind of the child being born to the extent that it is like, you know, an animal ready to fight right off the bat, it still needs to be protected. It still needs parents. It still needs love. And the the next two movies move even further into, I think, that concept of protection and love because the next movie starts with the baby literally going to fucking baptize itself. <laughs> Old Larry, man. <laughs> and he's Jewish, too. And it ha- it was a big Catholic scene, which I think is even funnier because all of his actors are, are almost entirely Irish. He had a name for it, too, like uh, Larry's Irish Playhouse or something to that effect. But it- it's just a very fun nod at humor, religion, uh, fatherhood. I really like to think that this series is kind of like, I don't know, the lighter opposition to something like Eraserhead, that it really is, like, it should be in the fatherhood Dr. Spock's guidebook of being a father. Watch the It's Alive series and maybe Eraserhead, see how that treats you. But don't take my advice on parenting, please, at all. And um, getting into the sequel of It Lives Again, again, another amazing trailer with the birthday cake. Uh, being ripped apart by a monster claw, which is uh, just well, you know, a startling image. Interesting and great about that is but all three of these movies, with the first two particularly, do have kind of Saul Bass-style title cards, which Larry did at his house. One of them was shot in his basement with a bunch of flashlights, and the second one was his pool. And, um, God, I can't remember the guy's name. Something Pearl was his photographer for part two Daniel and part Pearl? three. Yeah, Daniel Pearl, Texas Chainsaw Massacre fame, Daniel Pearl. He came up with the idea of the reflection of the uh, baby carriage uh, going into the pool and that really unique, like, just uh, fluent scene. I mean, you're introduced right in those title cards, and I love a good title card, and that's why I reference Saul Bass, because, I mean, he he's kind of the king of, well, not kind of, he definitely is the king of title cards. Well, and then bringing up that opening sequence, it reminds me of the Bernard Herman score of It's Alive, which is incredibly fucking bombastic. And for what is essentially a cheap little exploitation film about a killer baby, it has this like kind of magnificent, over-the-top, almost Citizen Kane-esque score of just... Well, that's funny you reference that to give credit to... Bernard himself, he scored Citizen Kane. He scored North by Northwest. He is the man responsible for Psycho, the infamous nah, 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 nah. That's him. Uh, his final project was fucking Taxi Driver, which, funnily enough, he finished, had dinner with Larry Cohen in Hollywood, and died that night, finishing the score for Taxi Driver. Uh, very ominous. But, yeah, this guy's entire career, I've even sold it short with some of the stuff he's done. Citizen Kane, I think, is a really big one. North by Northwest, Psycho, but God... This dude working on something about a killer baby is is just well, magnificent. It adds so much to what the project is. I mean, it makes it feel like this really big A picture because it has this incredibly like 
Well, you know, that's wow, the funny thing. Score. Like, if Larry has said, and this is in all of his commentaries, this movie did fucking beautiful in the European market. If this had been in French and they played it on the American circuit, all of the critics would have gone absolutely insane over it because it was some beautiful European nouveau masterpiece. But the fact that it was a killer baby movie from fucking Los Angeles by Larry Cohen, it didn't get a lot of credit. And at the time when the first It's Alive movie came out, what he was filming Black Caesar at the same time. I know he had done a lot of major work, not major, but I know he'd done a couple projects before that. But I think Bone with Yafet Kodo was really one of the biggest things that he had... Uh, had produced at that point, so you you know this is very early early basics for Larry Cohen, and it's what ten years later that they do a sequel. No, it's not. That's I'm sorry. No, part no, three is ten, ten years no, no, no. after part two, so I'm I'm incorrect there. It was um God, I can't remember the exact year. It was like what 1980, 81, something like that. It's Alive is 1974, and it's a, it lives again is 1978, and then we oh, was the year after. Uh, it's Alive 3, Island of the Alive is 87. So that's where the 10 years later yeah. comes in. Um, And I think the sequel is actually better than the original. I think the, the core themes of it are explored a lot further. Uh, I think the... I like um, Chef, it, but I disagree. Oh, man. I I think Frederick Forrest is an addition, uh, really adds something to the project. The, um, the fact that John Ryan's kind of working these parents through the situation and even Frederick Forrest goes through the same thing of that John Ryan went, went through in the first one of basically, Hmm, do we want this baby? And there, I mean, there adds for some tense scenes of dialogue back and forth between him and his wife. Um, and really kind of breaks down the idea of what Larry Cohen's working with, with this series of films. I gotta say, it Lives Again has one of the most awkward introductions to any movie. Imagine throwing a baby shower and all of your friends and family are there and there's some weird fucker that you just don't remember from work and the entire time you don't really say anything to your spouse about it and you come to find out after everyone's left your house, no one knows who they are. That's how this movie begins and it's just the awkward nature of it, again, is a compliment to, to Larry Cohen and his ability to to do something I rant about a lot, show you a picture and set a tone and a mood with that picture. Because when John Ryan shows up, you automatically know if you followed from the first movie, something clearly has to be wrong here. The addition of Frederick Forrest, as you, you brought it up, is really sweet. You don't, I mean... Never lot... get off the goddamn boat. Never get out of the boat. Absolutely goddamn right. Unless you were going all the way. Absolutely, not even for mangoes. Chef is great, and it is a lot of emotion that's added to things. But I, I mean, I don't know. I really think my biggest disappointment—spoilers. I'm tired of saying it on this show. John Ryan dies uh, in this film, and I really think he could have been left for part three. And were uh, him and Michael Moriarty together would have been rather splendid. Well, I feel that Michael Moriarty is almost a replacement for uh, John yeah, Ryan. His characters only exist because John Ryan died in this movie. And I don't think at this point Larry you know, really thought there was going to be an It's Alive 3. So a lot of the things, I think a lot of the loose threads that you know we had even brought up with some of the motivation and thoughts um, from It's Alive of, you know, is it kind of pro-choice or 
Is it more of this message of becoming a father? They're really expounded upon in this movie, and I think it goes into like a fork in the road situation because you've got uh, the John Ryan character who has now become kind of like a liberator for the the mutant monster babies that he you know believes in their rights and that they should be able to live. And Frederick Forrest has to go through pretty much what John Ryan did. You know, should it live? Should it die? It's a monster. It's a, can I be responsible for the death of my own child? Which it it has some of that fluency with the abortion discussion that I mentioned in the very first movie, but it goes into I think more of a deeper, you know, not not trying to dismiss abortion, but after the child lives, you know, uh, after the child is born, rather, could you kill your child in a situation like hypothetically, you know, your kid was uh, Ted Bundy and you walked in on them killing people viciously or harming somebody. Could you kill your child? Because in this essence, uh, like I was rambling earlier, the kids are born like animals, pretty much. They're at full strength, but they're afraid. You know, they're born which goes into part three, Moriarty states, they're born with gun in their hand, people pointing guns at them and, and, you know, lights and cameras, and they're called freaks and killed in the operating room. So, of course, they're attacking, that they're maybe an evolution of humans. I mean, it could be that whole drug angle, but they're born um, a- able to take care of themselves, which is something that the human child, you know, the, the, the human being can't do when they're born. They can't roll over, they can't eat on their own, they can't do anything. Without care, a baby certainly and definitely will die these are self-sufficient <laughs> um, i mean i don't know it's just a different angle i guess i'm 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 looking at here uh it just reminded me for some reason of um the happening and marky mark you don't care about the bees um but anyway moving on uh what i do like about part two um more so than part one is it has a little bit more of to me, a little bit more of the horror aspect and a little bit more action to it. Uh, we get to see the babies a lot more. Which Larry um, didn't like. He wasn't happy with that. And I, I don't know if I I don't care what Larry wants. This is what I want. Well, we keep forgetting also to bring up who did the amazing baby effects. But it's a young Rick Baker, our, our man with the plan, Rick Baker. One of the interesting stories I learned about him that will have no other place to tell on the show outside of me interrupting and telling it right now is Rick Baker did the King Kong effects for the uh, DeLoreantis King Kong, and apparently he lied constantly and said it was Carlo Rimbaldi that had built a uh, like animatronic robot for it, and it was just Rick Baker in a monkey suit. And I thought that was really great, and even wrote down on my notes, interrupt Nash and tell the monkey story. And there we go. <laughs> a brief Rick Baker All right, that's, that works. Um, I didn't know that fact. Yeah, I, I learned it today. Uh, thank you, Larry Cohen. <laughs> um. But, like, I just think it's a little bit more of a, like, kind of, I wouldn't say coherent story, because the first one's a neat little wrapped-up package, and this one's a little bit more loose, but I find the looseness of it, like, more interesting, and I find the the more characters that are added to it more interesting, because at a certain point, John Ryan, um, as an avatar in the first film, gets a little, like, self-satisfying and kind of dickish and it's hard for me to like be in his shoes and then when we get to where we are in in part two it just it spreads uh the story out between all these multiple characters like the the uh, the doctor who's trying to save the babies and all these different fucking things that are going on it just it seems like much more of like almost like an action film even though it probably has a lot less going on than the uh, the original did but I, i i don't know i just like seeing the babies more I like seeing the special effects. That's what I'm a I'm a monster guy. I want to see the fucking monster. 
And see, we'll talk about why I like the monsters more in part three, but I think some of my issue with this is a lot of... I mean, I I like part three because it's a Don Doler experience, and you're into this more because it is a more genuine monster experience. And it's not that I'm against that, and I'm all for the the better quality gore, and I definitely think they have a bit more vicious vicious nature, because you have three babies in this. You know, how do you up it? How do you make a killer baby scarier? Add to... Yeah, so it it works to that advantage that you've got, uh, I guess, more fear. And again, you've got that alien aspect that you do see it, but you don't see it heavily, like following with Cameron's aliens. You definitely see them a little bit more, but it's still more of an ominous threat to you. But losing the kind of pharmaceutical angle is something that I, I didn't really care for that I liked having all the different options, and it's sort of like reminiscent of Night of the Living Dead, that at the beginning of the movie you have all that um what was it jupiter saturn wherever the 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 saturn probe the saturn probe wherever the satellite was coming from maybe that's what brought it back or maybe when you go into dawn of the dead hell was full and all of these awful things have happened you had a lot of options with the very first movie of was it this pharmaceutical corporation or is it because everyone's eating monsanto beans and smoking cigarettes and hippie dope and the drugs are turning the babies into monsters or is it in my aspect, it's a weird theory, and I, I, I don't, I've never personally read this or heard anyone with my opinion and theory. But I, I like to think that the babies are an evolution of humankind, that they truly are evolving to be more animal-like and more self-sufficient because they can take care of themselves. But the one thing that is universal with, with everything is love and nurture and nature, that you need to have some form of a familial link, a familial unit. You need to have some form of a hierarchy with learning how to do things. That animals, even in you know big crowds, learn how to do something from each other. Like if you take a dog away way too early, it doesn't know its behavior. And these things are linked together. And behavior in the human mind, and like children are almost entirely id. Like all all children are is emotion. They can't do anything but feel emotion and like imagine if your ass is itching and you can't scratch it you're just going to scream and cry and do whatever humanly possible to let somebody know your ass is itching but you actually can't say my ass itches as to where uh, a newborn puppy can just scratch it against a tree they learn these triggers and these behaviors so it's a weird concept and thought with with this whole larry cohen series but maybe these little monsters are uh, a human evolution they're something higher up than us instead of lower well, we kind down. of get into that in part three and that's kind of where my problems are with part three um because one of the big problems i have is they the, the babies grow up <laughs> yeah, and they, they turn into little people in weird fucking rubber monster outfits <laughs> and they look stupid and cheesy as hell <laughs> i love it i don't know it, it's it's like a high budget night beast for me, and and Michael Moriarty's the icing on the cake, just because he's so spicy. I like Moriarty in it. I do yeah. like Moriarty. I like um his his weird angle in the film where he gets lost at sea for like fucking it it seems like twenty five goddamn minutes of the film. Yeah, it becomes a weird sequel to Captain Ron for a little while, and then it moves back into Larry Cohen territory. There there's some laughing to be had in uh in part three, which is I I don't think there's any laughter in part two. I think it's a little bit. I, I will agree with you on the. The subtext and the overall feel of the movie, I think it's a bit more serious than the first one, but I just like, I like John Ryan specifically in the first movie. I think he was the definitive leading man, and 
I I guess I mean looking at your standpoint, especially uh, just recently going through a lot of this and experiencing it, I can see why Ryan isn't incredibly sympathetic as a father as to where the Frederick Forrest one relates a little bit more to you. But I like why those questions are asked. I like why he is so upset over it and refuses to admit and acknowledge for the better half of the first movie that it's not his child. I mean, he's very adamant and very angry about that, and it's him not coming to terms. And, I mean, that could be used as a reference for anything of why you don't want to come to terms with, you know, whatever. But they make that reference during the abortion discussion scene where the wife actually says... You know, you're, it's not going to be like last time. You're not going to feel like it's choking you and ruining your life and, and, and holding you back. So, I mean, obviously this happened beforehand. So his behavior, I think, is, is shock. I think it really is just this pure primordial shock. Yeah. And like, let's talk about like one of the greater aspects of Larry Cohen and his Michael Moriarty fixation by It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive. What is his obsession with Moriarty coming um coming into contact with armed militia groups because in the stuff there's like a, an American militia and then by Island of the Alive he's fucking coming into America via Cuban invasion what the fuck is going on in Larry Cohen's head but that scene is handled so well because it, it is it's so weird it comes out of goddamn nowhere well it's absolutely weird but the way it was handled and I think the the small bit of commentary in that movie uh, I guess we'll look like liberal pinko snowflakes here, as will Larry Cohen. But the whole emphasis is he gets stuck in Cuba, and it's Castro's regime. He's stuck in Cuba. He's floated in on a raft. They've got guns on him. They're taking him into prison, and he tells them the story about the killer baby. So what do they do? They smuggle him back to the United States and give him a gun and say, hey, we're Cuban. We're, we're not bad guys. This is really important. This is for the betterment of the human nature, which is something fucking remarkable that only Larry Cohen would do that, hey, in the middle of my third sequel to my killer baby movie, I'm going to shine some light on the Cuban people. They're all not that bad. We as Americans monsterize them for no reason outside of uh, literal Joseph Goebbels-style propaganda. The Cubans, they ain't that bad. Now, back to our regular programming. And it's he's got so a gun. It's so bizarre, though, that it's in there. Well, yeah, it's, it, just, it's, it's completely senseless, but I, it's just something... The, the, the way he handled it, instead of, like I referenced earlier, some wild-ass Captain Ron scene, it turned into this weird little political song and dance of, like, the Cubans aren't that bad. I just want you to remember they're human just as we all are human, and the babies, they're human. It's, I mean, it's late era Larry Cohen. He only made one more movie with Michael Moriarty after this, which the only the only reason they did It's Alive three and uh, they didn't do four. It's Alive three and the sequel to Salem's Lot rather was he wanted to do um like House of Wax, a House of Wax remake, and they said no, but we'll let you do these. And he loved to work. That's that's what he did, and he excelled at. So he did those back to back with Michael and uh, what he did the the Pam Greer. Um, Fred, Fred Williamson, everybody. Original Gangsters. Yeah, he did Original um, Gangsters after that, and then it was a Am I wrong silent. about this? Didn't he, they like, they wanted a, a sequel to either Salem's Lot or It's Alive, but basically Larry said, I'll give you two movies for the price of one. I don't, I mean, uh, from what I've I'm pretty heard, sure that's how it went. I think they wanted one of the two, and he said, oh, you're going to give me that money? Why would you give me that much to make one movie? I'll make two out of it. And he split the difference and made two cheaper movies than what they were initially trying to give him. I think what it came down to is he wanted to do House of Wax and had suggested doing it and had a script for it. And they said, eh, no, but you could do this 
or you could do a sequel to It's Alive, and that's where he said, "Well, I could do both." I, <laughs> I'm Larry fucking Cohen. I that's that huckster dude. Like I could do both. Oh, yo, okay. You want to give me two million? That's way too much money. I'll give you two movies for two million. <laughs> he always one up at himself. Well, that's one of the remarkable things and fun facts with It's Alive 3, Island of the Alive, is for once, there's only like two or three scenes shot in Larry's house. They they did a location here, and it wasn't New York. It's Hawaii. They actually went in the opposite direction of his uh, normal. Again, his Irish crowd of players all shows up. Uh, I, get, I mean, we're transitioning into part three, but we can, you know, if something comes up, I'll jump back into part two. Um, it, it definitely is more of a early nineties. It feels, um, like the, the third extra movie. It's got that kind of quality. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really rough around the edges, but Michael Moriarty pulls it together and, um, Rick Baker no longer is involved in doing the special effects here. It it, it still has a bizarre, goofy charm to me. I love the grown up monsters. I I hate them. I hate them so much. It's one of the worst design things I've ever seen in my life. There's just so much bad to it. I think that that's really, I mean, it, again, I, I'll reference him all night. It just reminds me of Don Doler. It reminds me of Night Beast. And yeah, like imagine Night Beast with Michael Moriarty, and that's what you've got here. And it just brings me pleasure. And I, again, some of the weird, like nonchalant, hey, he got lost in Cuba, and then they brought him back. And here's a very weird socialist message throughout the entire movie. Karen fucking Black. There she <laughs> is. There's some Karen Black. Really not uh, essential to the plot or story whatsoever. It's weird seeing something Larry Cohen did that wasn't filmed in his house or New York City. There's I don't know if they actually shot anything in Florida. I don't I don't know if that was Florida at all. But um, it's just a completely. I different have my vibe. doubts. Uh, the vibe is different, but I think the message is just as strong. And Moriarty's character, I think, is one of the most in- intriguing father aspects of this, um, where he, from the very beginning, was in love with his child. He he recognized it as his child, as the other two parents, Frederick Forrest and John Ryan, went through a whole stage of considering it a monster, an alien, and foreign to them. Moriarty uh, upheld, you know, this is my kid, and you're going to lock it up in a cage and send it to an island. Because that's where we've gotten at this point in the story that these babies are born frequently enough and it's happening uh, all over the country. Instead of killing them on spot, they are now sent to a random island to mature and live in uh, a destitute hatred. Um, and there's a again, it's been a little bit since I've seen it, but there's a bit of a shift because doesn't Karen Black play the uh, Michael Moriarty's ex-wife? who had the baby to begin with, and she wants yes. nothing to do with, with the, the, the baby at all. She's moved. She lives in Florida. She started a new identity and life for herself and just wants nothing to do with it. She has gone to the extent that she can't have children anymore and just wants to move on. always having those motherly instincts and in this iteration that the mother wants nothing to do with the child she wanted a normal baby and michael moriarty is filling that kind of mother motherly type role for their their mutant child um and like the ending in itself is just kind of a mess uh you you just have like you know the the police showing up with guns and on top of a roof with these little people in suits and it just it it gets really really sloppy and have you ever seen return to salem's lot 
I haven't seen it this century. I I have seen it, but it is so. <laughs> I mean, it's worse than Island of the Alive. It is a mess of a movie. The special effects are bad. The story's bad. The only redeeming things are Michael Moriarty and Samuel Fuller for <laughs> being in it for no explicable reason. I think a big problem is Larry wasn't so much done with filmmaking, but he wasn't getting his way anymore. And something that was very expressed throughout his entire career is when he got his way and he had absolute control, even if it was cheap, it was going to be fucking amazing. It might be something ridiculous. And, and honestly, I don't care if it comes off as insulting, but if you think something like The Stuff is just a goofy average horror movie, you're wrong. And you're stupid, and you'll probably die alone, never understanding a goddamn thing. Now, that might be a little bit harsh, but I very, uh, I'm very passionate when it comes to Larry Cohen. Everything that he did had a, a significant meaning. It had a lot of heart, and it had a lot of soul, and it had a lot of his values, which, for the most part, I think I agree with. I think the message that Larry pushed throughout everything, uh, albeit political sometimes and personal at others, had a lot of heart and balls behind it. You know, he directed with his balls and his heart. I'll stand by that statement. But this movie, the humor aspect to it and, and looking at the, the next film he did and the, the later part of his career, I think he just wasn't able, as the world turned and the video market had become what it was, able to do his thing anymore. And that he was done. Well, I think you know, that, he, that he, it's actually reflected in what he ended up doing past this point, because this is the era when he started doing stuff like writing Maniac Cop and um, just selling scripts. I mean, he only did direct one other film, really. And then post that, he was just selling a lot of ideas and scripts. He never stopped. Even up to the day he died, he was still writing fucking scripts. He had done well enough for himself as a, a businessman that I think he was able to to be happy and to to enjoy his life and to enjoy what he did while still working. But I think he he as an artist, if he couldn't get his way, wasn't going to do it anymore. And he, you know, what two more times? I think he made two two more movies after this, right? I mean, I. I I can't remember. There's original gangsters, and I don't remember if he made directed anything else anyway. I mean, he wrote plenty of scripts, and I think that's where his career naturally progressed to. Because, like you said, if he couldn't get his way as a director, if he w couldn't get the money, if he couldn't turn the profit that like he like initially could, he was just going to write the script and let somebody else worry about it. I, I do think he was heavily involved in that fairly terrible it's alive remake that they did in like uh the mid 2000s i completely forgot about that till you just brought it up um, yeah that, that movie was that remade. happened yeah it's just one of the uh, i don't know one of the questions you can ask with larry cohen is would you have wanted to watch a movie he made that he didn't get his way on i mean i i personally i don't know i wouldn't be interested in looking at the movies he has written right now we're pulling up the good old imdb let's try and pull it back to 1989 uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, this is a huge list. Uh, the Ambulance, Maniac Cop 2, Maniac Cop 3, Body Snatchers, Guilty of Sin, a couple NYPD Blues, The Expert, As Good as the Dead, The Invaders, Ed McBain's 87th, I don't know, uh, Dare Tourist, Uncle Sam. Up until his death, he did... Uncle Sam. Uncle Sam. Uh, but he but did... like, that's what I mean, though. It's like, oh, it's almost like he didn't connected. want to fight the battles anymore. What he wanted to do was, here's my script, here's an idea, you want to fuck with all this shit. You want to fuck with the money men. You want to fuck with trying to get a lighting package to show up on time. I don't want to deal with this shit anymore. I'm kind of done with this. But here's my ideas. Try to realize them. Yeah, the world had changed a little bit to that extent also that you really couldn't, without a lot of insurance and backing, film something in your backyard anymore. And, and 
weird uh, comparisons between Don Doler and Larry Cohen, two guys that shot in their backyard. The difference is budget. I mean, truly, uh, I'm not going to put Don Doler on a pedestal as I would Larry Cohen, but I think most of his work really was made out of heart and soul. I mean, he put so much into what he was doing, not necessarily as politically or artistically as Larry Cohen did, but there is just a cool compromise between both of those guys. When it comes down to movies directed by Larry Cohen... Well, like, one of the things I find interesting you bring up Don Doler is... I, I can't remember why I heard this theory fucking put out, but I will reiterate it. Of It seems like Don Doler was just trying to improve on one idea. He made the same movie like seven times. You have the alien factor, which is, you know, it, it's, it's have a cavalcade of different aliens and monsters and like kind of uh, having his like his eyes being bigger than his stomach and not knowing how to control this stuff. And then you get to Galaxy Invader, which is a lot more pared down, but a lot kind of shittier. You also have Blood Massacre, which is essentially fucking the same thing again. And then he like, and around he made like Night Beast as well, which is probably his most realized concept, like I like version of that concept of the, an alien coming to a small town to wreak havoc. It's, it, it is. It's just it has probably has the best special effects. I guess you could say it has some of the best acting he ever worked with, even though the acting still sucks in Night Beast. But whatever. And Drago, oh Drago, the most heinous villain of all time. On the subject of Larry Cohen as a director, the final films that he did was 1990s. Or I'm sorry. 1987's Return to Salem's Lot, 87's Deadly Illusion, 89's Wicked Stepmother, 90's The Ambulance, As Good as Dead, 1995, which is a TV film, original Gangsters in 1996, and then the Masters of Horror picked me up, which reunited him with Michael Moriarty, which, uh, honest to God, I have a hard time recalling any of the, the Masters of Horror episodes, which is funny. The original episode of Death by DVD, the very, very first episode we were going to record, was going to feature uh, Dale Bailey, who wrote... I don't remember which one. I think uh, Joe Dante's the episode? The Joe Dante one. It's the one about the soldiers. Yeah, the, the one with the really great monk George W. Bush. And that ended up not happening. And I wish I could tell you what we did, because I don't remember now at all. <laughs> it, that Mark fucking Wahlberg movie, I swear to God, I think that was on the first episode. That 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 fucking one you referenced earlier. <laughs> Holy shit, I think it was. Um, did you uh ever go back and watch? Uh, God, I lost my train of thought completely. Um, and I'm the one that's high. Yeah, God damn it, you fucked me, Hank. You fucked me. You was fucked it original me on gangsters? Mars. Oh no, was it Ghost of Mars? Are we talking about that? It was not Ghost of Mars, because I have nothing to say about Ghost of Mars. I think I could talk about it for a while, but nothing good. Uh, Ice Cube's kind of all right. That one guy that's in all those other John Carpenter movies, he's in that. They got Martians up there this big? Okay, maybe that might be a transmogrification of uh, Anaconda and Ghost of Mars, but it's essentially the same character. Ghost of the Anaconda. 
You ever, so were you ever you, uh, coming back to it? Oh, I thought you might be coming back to your oh, thought. Oh, the ambulance. That. Have you seen the ambulance? Larry I, Cohen's the ambulance. Uh, maybe. It sounds familiar. Eric Roberts is in it. Stan Lee is in it, sort of, for a second. Um, James Earl Jones, Red Buttons. I don't think Classic so. Classic actor, Red Buttons. The ambulance is kind of fun. It's like a, almost a dog shit fucking TV movie feel to it. But it does have some, like, Eric Roberts is, like, totally blasted on coke the entire movie, which makes that fairly enjoyable um but it's just it's a weird thing about people stealing kidneys and shit but whatever he wrote another film with eric roberts in it didn't he uh i can't remember eric roberts has been in so much crazy shit over the years i have no idea the extent and the long reach of larry cohen from the beginning of his career even to the end of it is is pretty massive and in the horror community he's always remembered as a master of horror which sometimes i think is kind of funny that yeah you know you've got the stuff and cue the winged serpent winged i will die on the hill that it is winged and not winged cue the winged serpent it's alive um he wrote the maniac cop movies Everything he did truly did. Uh, everything he did truly. He had was a more about exploitation. Message. I mean, that's just who he was. Well, I don't even think so much to the extent he went into things uh, trying to make an exploitation movie. I think he had a very firm message and a thought behind everything and knew there's no way I'm going to sell this big. There's no way I'm going to be able to go out and do what I want to do, how I want to do it, unless I have some sort of bizarre subtext like it's a killer baby or it's a snack food that's going to kill people but that also too comes back to what larry cohen stood for i mean this is a guy that attacked the fda like two or three times in his career like he had a lot of weird uh, i wouldn't say weird especially in an era right now where you know weird genetic food like monsanto is existing and bug spray literally can fucking kill you we live in a, a very odd world where we don't recognize patterns and uh like asbestos something that houses were built with something that like steve mcqueen pretty much got mesothelioma and died because of asbestos for years and years and years it was a, a essential part of building houses of uh life and then finally you realize shit this is killing people like roundup like uh genetically engineered food to some extent and i'm not trying to go on some like hardcore left don't eat weird food meats giving people cancer riot because i have a fucking cigarette in my hand as i'm going on this rant but where larry cohen came from i think with a lot of his messages i I guess you could say was a little bit more progressively left-wing i mean he had a lot of ideologies that i think need to be addressed throughout his film and i mean just like literally he attacked the fda multiple times and it wasn't so much because he's against eating meat or against refined sugar, what he was trying to express and I feel personally say is, you know, we put a lot of weird shit in our bodies and we we let a lot of things the government says are okay slide. And it's something in our era, even more importantly now, we need to pay attention to is what the government says is good for you might not be good for you. What you see on TV isn't always the truth, etc. Yeah, like when I say he's an exploitation filmmaker, I don't think that was ever his goal was to be an exploitation filmmaker. I think that's what he landed into. And I think that's what his ideas generally lean towards, not by his, like his account. It's not like he, that's what the direction he wanted to go in. It's just the natural fit of where Larry Cohen ended up being. And I think that was, it was a perfect fit for him. I like, when you do go to his 2000 scripts that uh, like people like Joel Schumacher ended up making, 
they're still exploitation films, but they're just done on a much larger budget. So they did not like what made his films like exploitation was the fact that it's just I want to do this myself. And I like if I have to uh, fucking sacrifice this, this and this to to do that, then that's what I'll do. So it made it play to a more grindhouse drive in audience. But at the end of the day, his ideas were big. It's just his budgets were small. Well, even with small budgets, I don't know if you've seen Bone, but that is his introductory. I mean, that is his uh, debut as a director, and it certainly is one of the most explicit movies I've ever seen. I think beyond Grindhouse, beyond 42nd Street, uh, if there is a definition of a exploitation movie, it is Bone. And a, a massive part of that comes down to, I think Pearl worked on that and shot that with um, Larry Cohen, but Yafat Koto is just beautiful in that movie. And it's one of those really unique things. You know, you sit down and watch movies like Coffee, and you watch movies like Bone or Black Caesar or Hell Up in Harlem, and you see some of the greatest pieces of black exploitation, and you sit down and see, you know, it's a, a hairpiece wearing five foot two white Jewish guy that's responsible for this. And they were able to transcend in an era where people just weren't doing something like that. I mean, even the record industry, the motion picture industry being an African-American, you're primarily owned. I mean, it, it really was somewhat equivalent to something like slavery. Like guys like Phil Spector bought singers. They owned them under contract. They forced them to perform. Being able to have your voice heard, even if it was through some honky, was something. And what Larry Cohen offered and what he gave people was their voice. That he might have been behind the camera, but he wasn't telling some white man's story. And he wasn't telling it for the benefit of being some white man. There was always artistic integrity behind it. And him especially behind that movement. I would say Larry Cohen and Kim Richards. They they put heart and soul into a movement they had no fucking right being in, and they gave voices to people that otherwise wouldn't have had right. Robert Downey Sr. also was something like Putney Swope. They were able to to join a movement accurately and and act accurately. I think they were able to convey and show uh, something historical in an era where you just couldn't do that, in an era... I say like it's not true now. I mean, Jordan Peele fights the barrier, but I, I still, I bring this up a lot, his statement about why do you make movies with all African-Americans? Because I've seen movies filled with white people. An era where you couldn't do that. I mean, the early 70s, Mel Brooks could get away with making something like Blazing Saddles, but to show an actual story of an entirely African-American-led cast, guys like him and Larry Cohen broke barriers. I mean, they. I, I think still they they need that credit i think it needs to be addressed because these guys really did something different most definitely i mean <clears throat> that spirit is still around but that era is just gone now and the spirit is still here and it's in almost major production uh, films like I could even say the same thing of like um well, I mean God Candyman is going to be more I think the the remake of Candyman has more money put into it than the original did and I think it's probably going to end up being more subversive than the original was I, hope so. I, I say the same thing about something like um Jordan Peele's Us I think that has that Larry Cohen spirit of that 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 seventies early eighties exploitation spirit to it and dealing with hardcore themes and ideas but on a much larger budget and a much larger audience. And that's what I think 
is kind of interesting about horror as a genre is all the exploitation became huge. That I mean, that started happening with Jaws. Like, exploitation became the mainstream, and now, like, the subculture, the exploitation culture, if you will, is fucking art movies. Like, The Witch. That is what a horror film is now. It's like, it's just an art film. The Lighthouse, it's an art film. Uh, Midsummer. I mean, that's a fairly large budget, but at the same time, it's still just... It's a fucking art film, well, I mean, but let's also do a, a horror contrast film. of two things we've discussed and did a whole episode about on this show, the Neon Demon and the Suspiria remake. But, I mean, you can't say that exploitation just now is becoming art because Suspiria, when it came out, I mean, that's that's I think is more art over exploitation. So I don't think this movement is necessarily mo- new. You know, I don't think things are being uh, changed. Well, it's not new. But... What I'm saying is that the exploitation era was always viewed as being this like kind of subversive underground thing. And then slowly over the years, it's not like a, a, a brand new thing. It's just slowly becoming over the years. It became somewhat mainstream. And like Suspiria is now looked at as this huge classic. And I can tell you in 1987, no one gave a shit about Suspiria. No one had even heard about Suspiria. I mean, oh, some people had, the, like people who were into Italian cinema and blah, blah, blah. Like, Fangoria didn't talk about Argento. They might have one article every, like, five years about Argento. Like, none of that shit was ever brought up. But now, like, all those things from the past are, like, those are what's looked at as art. And, like, Reanimator is art. And, like, the the new Bo stuff is what that's hearkening back to is those sorts of things. The new nouveau is proto horror art. And, I mean, this is even a discussion you and I have uh, quite regularly off the show just disdain for quentin tarantino and it's not necessarily something that comes with age because i i know people of all ages and all fandoms that are into tarantino or aren't into tarantino but sometimes it comes down to seeing and he's infamous for this quote it isn't an insult to him whatsoever but tarantino has said a thousand times i steal from every movie ever made and it sounds like some edgy witticism until you start seeing some of those other movies and then see ah. I get you literally you... just stole from every movie ever made. It's not even an homage. It's just, okay, you did that thing again. Well, here's the thing, and I guess this is the cocky part of my statement. You stole from every movie ever made, and you just kind of lacklusterly did it. Like, okay, you know, I can watch a band of outsiders, and I guess here's even more of a cocky statement. The way too long, dismal, stupid-ass dance scene. It wasn't charming when I saw it then. It was especially boring when I saw it in Pulp Fiction. I get the song and dance, and I, I whole, wholly uh, get the, the artistic integrity behind doing some of these things. But when you're just filling the screen to fill the screen, and you're not motivating the story, you're not progressing, you're not pushing anything. I mean, when Larry Cohen was behind the camera, absolutely everything you saw was uh, necessary. And if it wasn't... 100% directed toward what you needed to feel. It was something progressing how you needed to feel after this scene or something that you needed to think about later. All of it was necessary. You just fill time with bullshit. What have you done? I mean, you're, you're not... You're just jerking off. And like the house that Jack built. Although it's a, a quaint and nicely filmed movie and I, I, I don't hate any of the performances, it's almost three hours of Lars von Tiers just jerking himself off repeatedly and just coming in his own face to that extent. It's fucking nothing. And whatever, it looks good. I'm not going to go on some long-winded rant about meh, but what do you do if you're just doing nothing? You're just filling time, and that's not making a movie. 
Well, I guess that says it all then, doesn't it, Hank? I've seen God Air. I just don't like it. The dance scene, Buddy Holly. Eh. You know, what God Air didn't have was a lot of butt-fucking. Eh. That's subjective. I think that'll do it. Butt-fucking is subjective. The ashtray is full, and the bottle is empty. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.